0: Welcome to Emotion Well, EFR's podcast about all things related to emotional wellness. I'm Johanna Dunlevy, the Wellness Manager for Employee and Family Resources, also known as EFR, and I'm the host of our podcast. As an FYI, EFR is located in Des Moines, Iowa, and we are Iowa's first employee assistance program and provide a variety of services you can learn more about at www.efr.org i'm here today with greg bellville and abby patterson from prevent child abuse iowa and we are going to be talking about national child abuse prevention month welcome to the show greg and abby
1: thank you thank you for having us
0: thank you yeah go ahead and tell our listeners a little bit about yourselves greg i'll let you go first
1: so my name is greg bellville i am the executive director of prevent child abuse iowa uh, that, that is what I do now. Currently, um, previously my background is in behavioral health, primarily focusing on substitute disorder treatment. Uh, and I am the proud dad of two, uh, little minions, uh, Ryder and Calvin and the coalescence of all of that is what really, uh, brought me here to prevent child abuse, Iowa and, and stokes my passion for helping children and families.
2: Excellent. And Abby. Um, Hi, thanks for having us. Um, I am the program manager for the Iowa Child Abuse Prevention Program. I've been in this role a number of years, and I um, am also the parent of two great kids, and I can have firsthand experience in uh, knowing exactly how stressful parenting can be,
0: even
2: though it's even though it's great. It is. And I'm a mother of a six-year-old
0: and I get it as well. So it definitely comes with its challenges. So very rewarding, but very challenging. And of course, based on someone's set of circumstances, it can be extra challenging. So uh, I want to have a conversation today about your organization, Prevent Child Abuse Iowa, so our listeners can learn a little bit more about it. We have a lot of listeners coming from Iowa, but we do have listeners across the United States. So um, especially for the the Iowa-based listeners, I think information about your organization can be especially helpful. So let's just kind of start there. What is Prevent Child Abuse Iowa? What is its mission? How is it serving our parents and children in the state?
1: Sure, sure. So, Prevent Child Abuse Iowa is a statewide nonprofit uh, based here in Des Moines, but really serving all of Iowa's 99 counties. We are part of the Prevent Child Abuse America chapter network, right? So we do we are part of that that affiliate group um, and and partner with with other states through that and shared learning opportunities, standards, things like that. Our mission is to empower community uh, prevention efforts to provide safe and happy childhoods. Uh, Through collaboration with diverse partners leading to a better future for Iowa, and that is a mouthful, but that is very intentional right Uh, we really exist to support those communities around the state and those efforts around the state that are working directly with families. Uh, to create those conditions and to provide those services, resources to create those conditions for happy, healthy childhoods, right? And we know that we get that through strong, well-supported families. And really through that collaboration, right, and helping all of the parts of Iowa are different, right? What what works in Sioux City isn't necessarily going to work in Sioux Falls, right? Um, And isn't necessarily going to work in Des Moines. So how can we help to uh support those folks and bring them more information resources listen to them and and have uh facilitate some of that shared learning but also how do we expand beyond what uh what i'll I'll call the the usual suspects right the traditional players when people think child abuse prevention the first thing that often comes to mind right is teachers and hhs and maybe the police right and really trying to help shift how we think about child abuse prevention away from uh, broken bones and bruises, right? But to really well-supported families that have the resource they need. And, and that puts a lot of different partners at the table. It's all of our responsibilities, not just DHS to prevent child abuse, right? By the time DHS is involved, something bad already happened typically, right? right? But it's, it's how do our communities come together to support one another, to build those protective capacities as you said before right there's there's different circumstances for people parenting's hard enough as it is um and we know that you know supporting happy healthy childhoods that's that's the future it's cliche as it sounds to say it it's the truth right that's that's our next generation of adults and parents and leaders absolutely really making sure that they have the best chance of success that they can so we do that through uh through uh, awareness, assistance, and advocacy. We provide training and technical assistance. We do community messaging and education, and, and we advocate at the state, local, and national levels for family-friendly policies.
0: So let's kind of step back to what child abuse is by definition. I think a lot of us think of it as, like you said, the bruises, the broken bones, but it's obviously so much more than that. We recently did a podcast about emotional abuse. And, you know, a lot of times when uh, an individual identifies themselves as being in an abusive relationship, but saying nothing further than that, I think most people assume that it must be physically abusive, right? But we know that abuse can be physical, sexual, uh, mental, emotional, verbal. So can you give our listeners just a general overview of what child abuse is by definition uh, and maybe some examples of it?
2: Yep. There's a number of categories in Iowa that are considered child abuse. Over half of the cases across the state are considered that neglect or denial of critical care. Of the remaining of, of the next third are substance use related. And then um, about 15%, the remainder um, Are related to sexual abuse, sex trafficking, uh, mental injury, uh, which gets into that emotional abuse and physical injury.
0: Mm -hmm. So when you mention that
2: about half are
0: neglect, does that mean that the child's needs are not being met? Are they being left home alone? Are they being emotionally neglected? How is that defined?
1: There's, there's a lot of different categories that fall in that denial of critical care bucket that can include those things. Are you providing medical care, clothing, food, shelter, uh, uh, emotional support, uh, and uh, to the point to where it is a uh, physical harm or risk of death to the child? And one of the difficulties that our state and nationally that people are facing is that becomes so entangled with other conditions like mm-hmm. poverty for the family, mm-hmm. stable housing, food insecurity, uh, child care, right? And one of the things that Iowa is is trying to do right now, and, and I commend their efforts on this, is really looking at is the family doing this intentionally with the, the ability to not debt. So am I, am I purposefully denying my child access to food that is in my house versus we just can't afford to buy good food. Right. And that's, that's a long battle that we are in the process of right now trying to figure out, right. Because naturally you show up to a house and there's a child who is hungry and starving. The family came from, and you want our first inclination. I want to help this child. I need to protect this child. Right, Uh, and and really trying to untangle how do I support that family to provide for what they need rather than remove that child from that situation, which we're learning more and more creates more problems later on down the road. Even though it's with the best intention to protect the child, right? That child is attached with that family and trying to separate that being poor from child maltreatment, right, Uh, or having some sort of resource deprivation. you know, we really try to, try to advocate for as much as possible, poverty doesn't make someone a bad parent, right? right? Substance use doesn't make someone a bad parent. Those people aren't unfit to be parents. They're just having different struggles mm-hmm. um, and, and whatever we can do to support those parents to keep that family together.
0: What about the the next third? You said, Abby, is related to substance use and misuse. What would examples be, like witnessing that in the home or not being cared for because a parent is, you know, not able to due to their addictions?
2: So there could be um, use of substances in the presence of a child. So, um, you know, using drugs or alcohol um, in a way that's dangerous to the child, um, illegal drugs that, you know, the child could see, smell, hear that it's going on. It could also be um, substance use during pregnancy where the child is born with the substances in their system or um, substances in their system due to accidental ingestion, those kinds of things.
0: With regard to uh, babies being born with substances in their system, is that, how is that screened for? Is that something like, I mean, I had a daughter six years ago. I don't remember, like, do they, do they screen every child for that? Or is it kind of on a case-by-case only if they suspect that there could be an issue with that?
2: It it varies from hospital system to hospital system. Sometimes there's universal screening and sometimes it's only, um, screening is only happening if there's a suspicion okay okay uh and then i know i know
1: when oh
2: Oh, go ahead greg i
1: was gonna say i know when we had our both of our children my wife was uh drug tested every every prenatal visit
0: okay yeah and i guess that's that's one of those things that you might not even know is going you know you're you know, submitting a urine sample for a lot of reasons, sometimes when you're pregnant. So sometimes um, you may not even know that that screening is taking place. Uh, what about the, the sexual abuse and the sex trafficking? I know that's been a really um, big topic in our state and nationwide. And, you know, I think about <clears throat> whenever I use a public restroom at a gas station or at a rest stop, uh, you know, there's always a sign on the back of the door about um, a lot of times it's about sex trafficking, but sometimes it's about just domestic violence in general. But um, what are we seeing in terms of trends for that type of child abuse in Iowa?
2: So trafficking situations are are definitely um, awareness of trafficking is becoming more prevalent. and so um, it's it is more likely to be recognized and reported. The majority of um, individuals that are experiencing sex trafficking, aren't necessarily being moved, you know, from city to city or state to state. A lot of times that is, it's called trafficking in place. So that's, Mm -hmm. that's happening in their home. And a lot of times it is somebody known to the family or, or from within the family. Um, that is a very trafficking is a low, a very low percentage of the sex, sex abuse related cases. Um, the other thing we know about sexual abuse, um, We do know it's not always, you know, reported and, and these aren't, there's the, maybe the myth that this is happening, um, you know, the stranger in the white van kind of thing. And, and what we know is over 90% of children that are sexually abused, um, the perpetrator is somebody known and trusted to the family, thirty to forty percent um being family members, um as well as a, a high proportion being um, maybe older children or other children living in the home,
0: yeah. I think that's important to note just because there is so much attention on the human human trafficking aspect. But, like you said it, while it's a very serious issue, it makes up a much smaller percentage of sexual abuse than uh, you know, the abuse that could be taking place within a home, within a family, with those trusted individuals. Um, let's talk a little bit about domestic violence. So I feel like when people hear the term domestic violence, they think intimate partner violence, you know, violence between, you know, two adults. But if um, if there's a family dynamic where one parent is abusing the other, um, is that considered a form of child abuse? If the child is witnessing um a parent abusing another parent, or maybe it's not even, um, a parent to parent. It could be, you know, um, their father is abusing his, his wife or girlfriend that happens not to be the mother
2: of, of the children. But
0: do you understand what I'm saying? Like is domestic violence, is child abuse a form of domestic violence?
2: Domestic violence can cause a situation where there's a safety concern uh-huh. that is considered um, abusive under the law, but it it is situationally dependent okay. on on what's happening and and the risk to the child. Okay. What
1: it what it does contribute to is adverse childhood experiences, right? Yeah. It contributes to the tra- the trauma that the child experiences and the impacts that that has on their still rapidly developing brain. That if not supported through positive relationships and resilience building, can have negative health impacts later on in life.
0: Yeah, and and so I wanted to talk talk a little bit about adverse childhood experiences, because at EFR, that's something that we do a lot of, uh, you know, at at EFR, we're trying to provide services to workplaces, individuals, and communities um, through our EAP, through our prevention programming, uh, and oftentimes, you know, we're seeing families and and adverse childhood experiences are things that come up. Um, and so I know that with regard to aces, experiencing violence in the home um, or witnessing violence is considered an ace, as is abuse or neglect. Um, and even really common things like you know, my parents separated when I was three and I grew up in a home that didn't have, you know, both my parents. That's considered, you know, an adverse childhood experience. But Uh, And maybe you, you too have more information about ACEs, but for those of you listening who are unfamiliar with ACEs, um, there are different criteria and the more ACEs you have, the greater likelihood that um, you will, you know, experience future violence, victimization, um, have like less opportunities to lead healthy, full lives, um, less opportunities in life, greater risk for incarceration, is there anything else around ACEs that you wanna share with our listeners that you think is important as it relates to child abuse and child abuse pre- prevention?
1: There's there's two things I'll say is number one, the when we look at the landmark ACE studies and the original 10, right? I think a lot of times people have a tendency to say, well, here's the list, right? And And making that assumption that if it's not one of these 10, then it doesn't count for whatever reason, right? And and so trauma that a child can experience while they looked at those 10 can be anything, right? Trauma is very personal. What is traumatic for me might not be traumatic for you based on what your life experiences. So, and, and the other thing that I'll say, so you, you described that dose effect, right? The more adverse childhood experiences that I have, uh, the the light more likely I am to experience negative health outcomes later. We're also learning more and more about positive childhood experiences or or benevolent childhood experiences. These things that we can put uh, in the life of a child that a child can experience that also have a dose effect the more of these things I have uh, someone who cares about me in my life a trusted a trusted person at school who I can go to someone who I can ask for help or, or talk about my emotions with have have a buffering effect that encourage positive health outcomes later on in life so it's not uh, th- there is a lot of hope there in yeah. that ACEs information that doesn't get presented as as frequent ACEs are are largely preventable right some of them like mental health issues within the home uh or or the divorce of family uh is is a little bit tougher but we can mitigate or buffer the impact of those through relationships and resilience for all of our kids and and adults right that that doesn't stop after someone turns 18 or 26 or 12 or whatever you want to define a child as
0: yeah i love that because when you look at the list of aces you know sometimes it can feel really daunting like oh my gosh like You know, the cards are just against me. Right. But like you said, there are also very positive childhood experiences that you can have that help mitigate some of those. Um, So let's kind of talk a little bit about I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because I want to talk mostly about prevention, but um, just general signs. You know, if you're someone who um, may be concerned for a child or a family, um, what would be some things to look for that that could uh, raise concern?
2: So I will say some of the signs of, you know, abuse or uh, neglect are signs that you just might see of of any child, right? So if you see bruising or injuries, um, if you see maybe kids are acting out behaviorally in a strange way, or, um, you know, if a child looks like is showing outward signs that their needs aren't being met, whether it's a medical issue or um, a cleanliness, proper clothing, those mm. kinds of things. Um, so, so we see those physical and behavioral signs. Often, there aren't a lot of outward signs, um, you know, that a that a child is experiencing uh, abuse. It, Sometimes there's just those concerns, right? Something feels off. Um, sometimes parents come to the attention of, of child welfare or law enforcement um, due to due to substance use. Um, but some of the things, you know, if a child is acting out, it could be a sign, but it, it it's not necessarily. So I, I would encourage people, if they have a concern, to, to try to get a little bit more information. Um, but sometimes children that are... Um, overly trying to, you know please adults. Um, if children if children are acting out sexually um, in a way that's really beyond what's age appropriate or developmentally appropriate, um, those can be some signs kids
1: are tricky, right? Like, this is a question we we get asked a lot, and it's and it's hard to tell. There's not, and that's what makes this hard, especially when you consider child sexual abuse, right? It's way easier to see a broken bone or a bruise on a kid, and like Abby said, like, if you look at my kids right now, like, they wrestle right by the fireplace, uh-huh. whatever. They have a new bruise all the time, right? Uh, but trying to trying to discern, is this a a growing and developmental thing? Is there a sudden behavior change? Uh, uh, Being scared of going to some place that they used to not be afraid of? Loss of interest in activities that they were previously very interested in that could be developmental. And and it gets to the point of, of really having those strong supportive relationships. Those social supports are such a strong protective factor. Um, and not in preventing abuse in the first place but then also being able to recognize uh, if if something is happening which there is there's no like one question we can tell people to ask a kid to make sure that they're not getting abused
0: right is it common for in a family where there are multiple children like is it common for there to be maybe only one child who's being abused or if if abuse is taking place is it usually happening with all of the kids like I would assume if it's if it falls into the neglect category that's probably going to be across maybe all siblings in a family but.
2: It it can be both right it, it could be all children, or it could be that one child one child in the family is particularly targeted okay. I mean really every cases is, is different
0: yeah. um. Are most children being abused by their primary caregivers or does this sometimes extend into like a babysitter that comes over and is taking care of the child might be the one abusing, whether it's sexual abuse or physical abuse? I mean, are there statistics on, you know, is it mostly a, a parent or primary caregiver that's perpetrating this or is it oftentimes another trusted adult in the child's life?
2: I I would say um without having the those statistics right at my fingertips it is both um you know a good portion of sexual abuse would be um you know a parent a close family member um a step parent those um those roles but also what we know over 90% of sexual abuse is is somebody that's either in the family or close to the family yeah
1: it's someone who has more often than not someone who has access and a relationship with the kid, right? This it's the, the stranger danger thing is a myth, right? Like it's not like Abby said before, it's not someone's going to come scoop up your kid from the grocery store and abuse them mm-hmm. typically. And as we talked about before, sex trafficking, these things that are happening within the home often contribute to vulnerabilities that can turn into vulnerabilities for sex trafficking or yeah. things like that later on as, kids are looking for different relationships or or whatever support in other places outside the home where those things are happening
0: yeah as a mother of a six-year-old daughter I've you know I've talked to her about you know strangers and you know we don't um you know the whole like we don't accept candy from strangers if they say that they want you to come play with you know their new puppy I've gone through all of those like very common scenarios but I've also tried to tell her, you know, like when we're at, you know, so-and-so's house, like when you use the bathroom, it needs to be private. Or when you need to change into your swimsuit, you're old enough that you don't need help doing that. And if someone wants to help you and you're uncomfortable, you need to tell them that and you need to tell me. And so what are some of the preventative things or what are some of the things that we can talk to our kids about? Um, And I understand it's all age appropriate, right? Like you're going to talk to a three-year-old differently than you'll talk to a 13-year-old. But what are some other things that we can do to help prevent child abuse and also teach kids about body boundaries um, and just, you know, when to speak up to a trusted adult when they feel something is off?
1: And, and there's things you can do at different levels. And Abby, jump jump in and at any time and interrupt me, please. Like one of the things I, I two my boys are young, right? They're four and seven. And one of the things that we've really tried to do is help them understand uh, consent age appropriately, right? I grew up in a family where you just gave hugs and giving hugs like wasn't really an option. Like when grandma was there, you gave grandma a hug, right? And what that's teaching people is, they're the adult, right? And you do what they say, whether you want to or not. So trying to work with my kids and with my family to let my parents know, right? they're They have their grandbabies now that they love it's like, hey, if if Calvin doesn't want to give you a hug, we just need to respect that decision if for whatever reason, I don't want him to think if an adult tells him he has to do something that he has to do that, right? It doesn't right. mean he doesn't love you or whatever, right? But it, it, helping him to understand he has the ability to say no, helping kids to understand what what those trust what are secrets you can have right. Uh, in in my house like there's no secrets from mom and dad and mom and dad are gonna tell each other things. If another adult asks you to keep a secret like that, that doesn't count, right? You yeah. you need to let mom and dad know that. Uh, and and talking about what that means and how you navigate relationships like that. Uh, a thing that Abby Abby taught me very early on that has definitely impacted my parenting, as well as we talk about so much safety stuff with our kids. Wear your bike helmet. Look both ways before you cross the street. Right. These put your seatbelt on. But there are some issues that are taboo or more difficult or embarrassing to talk about. Right. Like uh, like body parts or or changing in front of people or whatever appropriate touch the, because it's taboo for us, we're teaching our kids. And when they recognize that, right, kids are sponges, right? They yeah. see everything. If it's uncomfortable for us to talk about, they pick up on that. Oh, that's the thing I need to be uncomfortable to talk about. But if we treat it like wearing the helmet, looking both ways, now that's a thing that improves that open line of communication between children and families that can help be preventative at that, uh, that parent-child, caregiver-child relational level.
0: Yeah, I love what that, did i miss? It? I love the not having secrets. That's something that I also, uh, you know, say in my home with my daughter and we were, uh, with some of my family members, some of my extended family members. And one of my nephews said to my daughter, can I tell you a secret? And I said, Oh, actually we don't have secrets. You know, I mean, I, I just, I felt like I had to kind of insert myself there because, you know, not that whatever my nephew was going to tell her was inappropriate, but, you know, it's just so common for people to use that word secret, but you know, that is a really important kind of boundary to have with your kids is that we don't have secrets. You can tell us anything. We're not going to be upset with you. Um, But also when other people tell you that they have a secret, we don't have secrets. So I love that example, Greg.
2: I think you brought up a great point that just having that open dialogue, you can talk about anything. Um, So conveying, you know, we have proper names of body parts, and we can talk about our private parts. We we keep them covered because they're special, but we can still talk about them. And not just that, but but any topics, having that um, ongoing good relationship where you're having open communication with your kids is key.
0: Yeah, isn't there That's research that place. shows that uh, when you use proper anatomical ter- terms for private parts, um, children feel more empowered and... I don't know if it's that they're less likely to be sexually abused, but I feel like I encountered some information once where it was like, when you use, you know, the, the terms assigned to the anatomy that are proper versus kind of nicknames, it it does make a difference. And I don't know what
1: when we when we advocate for sexual abuse prevention, one of the things, that's one of the things that we advocate for, like that we're using the proper terms or, or terms that are easily understood by any reasonable adult to where I'm effectively communicating a thing and where the adults in that child's life have that information and that child has that same, so everybody knows we're getting this and we can have an easy conversation about this. One of the most heartbreaking stories I heard very early on here, was about a family of a girl who tried to disclose for years to her parents that she was being sexually abused by someone in her family. And she kept saying, you know, so-and-so is playing with my purse and I don't like it. And the family's like, well, whatever, like, it's just a purse. Don't worry about, right? Until they figured out later what she was saying. And then they, and then just like heartbreak, like, that's the worst thing you can imagine as a parent, that your child was asking you for help and you didn't understand because we didn't call it the right thing, yeah. right, and it's so easy to do that, and that's a, a terrible example of, but why it's so important, and yeah. it's not, right, it's not trying to overly sexualize kids, it's just, we need to have effective communication for when something happens, right, just like we would if, you know, again, being a young parent, we we long for the days of, just tell me what's wrong with you, kid, yeah. like, I just wish you could tell me, like, oh, my head hurts, or yeah. I, my tummy doesn't feel good, or whatever, right, similar with, with body safety.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that is a heartbreaking example, but it's, it's a really powerful one. Uh, What are some other things that we can do from a prevention standpoint?
2: So when we think about prevention in general, um, not just specific to sexual abuse, but all, all child abuse prevention, we really focus on building protective factors. Protective capacity with families, um, and we we use the protective factors framework. So we know that there's things that are risk factors for maltreatment. We also know that if we can build resilience in families, if we can get families access to um, the concrete supports, right, meeting their meeting their basic needs, that we can strengthen them, and there's less um, likelihood of abuse occurring. So. Some examples of those um, would be, you know, building building resilience is um, building hope with a family, um, helping them to manage adversity and learn coping skills um, so that they can really, you know, build their self-efficacy when we when we support children's development, so they're the child's cognitive, social, emotional learning. So we're supporting them to learn empathy. We're teaching them soft skills. We're really laying the foundation um, for them to have, Uh, To promote their positive child development, kids that are on track developmentally and have good coping skills are easier to parent. Um, And and along with that comes knowledge of parenting and child development. So when parents have the skills to support that development, they're going to be more successful and they're going to be less stressed out. So, so whether that is going to a parenting class or getting resources and information out there, um, building the skills of parents uh, is huge in helping them to be effective.
0: And does a couple your organization of organization have any resources like that? I, I was on your website and I feel like I stumbled across um, a community, like an online support community or maybe a, a course that people can join imagining this
2: so we have um we support this in a couple different ways we we have resources out there um one resource we have online is the imperfect parent club That's The name the yes. name's a little tricky it's not really a club it's really more of a hub for resources oh but it's a club it's and a... <laughs>
1: we're all in it right and the reason we call it that is there is there's this myth that parenting is easy and people make it look so easy and their kids are so well behaved in church and at the restaurant and at the grocery store and it's not on instagram or whatever right it's hard to be a parent yeah and it's hard to ask for help right and the a thing that we can do to help build prevention efforts is to recognize it's hard to be a parent and be more supportive and and patient with people right uh and and uh, again, an example from my life. I, I go to a church that is very supportive of kids and young families, right? And when we we had uh, our pastor there, you know, our kid was crying and we were like, oh, we're stressing out. Obviously, we hadn't slept in days and we were getting ready to take him out of church. They're like, no, 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 your baby's doing what it's supposed to do. Babies cry. Like, don't leave, please. Like, it's, and we're like, oh my gosh, thank you so much. Like, we feel like such jerks because our baby's being <laughs> disrupted, Right. Like that, that's part of the imperfect parent clover. The the spirit behind it is like, I've shown up to the Capitol with throw up on my jacket before that I didn't realize before. And some people like, what are you doing? Right. We saw us during the pandemic with kids coming in on Zoom, on the Zoom calls and interrupting that. Like, it's hard enough. We don't need to make it harder on each other. We need to recognize that, give that grace and support to parents. It is a club and you're all invited.
0: Check (laughs) it out. I'm a proud member myself. So I, that is exactly what I saw on your website because I laughed when I saw it. Cause I was like, this is perfect. Like, I love this. I love it when, you know,
2: people can be real and it's
0: hard. So yeah.
2: life is not Instagram.
0: <laughs> no, no. That's and I actually, brand. I
2: struggled a lot when I first became a mom.
0: Um, I really struggled comparing myself, my daughter, the milestones, relationships, all that stuff. And it was really through that filter that people put on everything, and myself included. You know, I mean, I can say like, all oh, these people are just posting the the best parts of their life. Well, if I were to go back and look at what I was posting during that period, it's it's kind of comical because my daughter had colic, and I was always posting like the cutest pictures of her, you know, the cutest outfits, not like the insanity that was actually happening.
1: <laughs> right. So. Right. Kids are the um, best, worst.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I wish we could all be a little more real. <laughs> on social
2: so I, I think just highlighting those norms that we have, um, you know, that it does take a village. Parenting is hard. Um, really building that is is key, not just in terms of building individual protective factors, but to build kind of that community yeah. level. How do people feel about parenting? What are the expectations? Um, level setting on that a little bit.
0: Absolutely. And as a parent, it's just hard as a human to ask for help. You know, people don't want to ask for help, but um, especially, you know, as a parent, it's, you know, asking for help, knowing when it's time for you to take care of yourself so that you can better take care of your, your family, I think is, is such a hard, but important step to take. Uh, And I know that I've, I've been fortunate to have people in my life who've said, Hey, do you want to go for a walk? And it's like, oh my gosh, that would actually make a huge difference in my life right now if I could just go for a 30-minute walk by myself. So um yeah, I think leaning on your community and knowing that we're all imperfect and we're all in this together is really important. Um, what just quickly, if if you know someone suspects that a child is being abused or neglected, what are the the best steps to take?
1: So if if you Think someone's being abused, you can always call HHS and uh, report that to them, and they can do an assessment and take it from there. One of the more more preventatively, if you have concerns about the, your neighbors or or child, is is having those relationships to understand what's going on there. Right? There's there's not a good substitute for that. Right? If you think there's imminent danger, like this is happening right now, then call the police right? Like someone is being hurt right now, do that. If you think that somebody uh, doesn't have their needs met, being met, and there's abuse happening, it's not imminent danger, you can call HHS. But the way our system is currently set up, and again, our state is taking strides to try and improve this, but because of longstanding legislation and, and funding mechanisms and all that stuff we won't get into, right? Our system is based right now on report, observe, remove, right? Instead of one that is identify and support, right? And we're trying to make that change and, and the federal government has recognized the amount of damage that is done when we remove a child from a house is oftentimes greater than if we would have left that child in that dangerous situation in the first place. And it's hard to rationalize that around like, but there's a kid here who's in, there's a safety risk or danger here, right? I want I want to save them. We would do anything for these kids, but there, there's no substitute for, those those social connections as a protective factor that concrete community supports as a protective factor where we can say you know before we ever get to the point where that call has to be made we see people struggling with different things and to add to those stressors, right? When we talk about, there's no amount of programming we can do that's gonna help a family that is housing insecure and food insecure, and all stuff. Like, yeah, yeah, we know you can't feed yourselves or or you can't pay your rent, but like just learn some better resilience skills. Then like, it's like asking a hungry kid to show up at school and know their algebra tables or whatever, yeah. right? It's so hard to do all of that yeah. stuff when I don't have those basic things met so that's where our communities and where we say like it's really all of our responsibilities. Whether we're the big employer in town or or the city council or whatever, how are we creating spaces and places where families have the conditions they need to thrive. Um, is because if we don't, then we're at that point where now we're observing abuse. Abuse already happened, right? For us to call HHS, some sort of abuse is already suspected to have occurred. Right. Uh, and then and then there's there's a lot of risks there. Instead of just trying to give that family the support that they mm-hmm. need, uh, so where they don't need to interact in that system in that way.
0: Abby, is there anything oh. going on in a- Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead.
2: Oh, I was just going to add on um in addition to those like individual connections anything that communities can do to make things easier for families whether it's um Making it easier to access affordable housing, food, health care, mental health support, and then um, other big picture things, just having um, communities that have jobs with living wages and, you know, family friendly work environments, whether it's um, flexible scheduling or having a lactation room, um, paid leave, those things really do make a difference for helping new, fa- new families especially, but families just start off strong and and to be strong and supportive.
0: Yeah, and I know right now there's such a shortage of child care providers, especially if you're in rural Iowa, um, you know, people having to spend a large portion of their day just getting their children into childcare 50, 60 miles from maybe their home or their place of work. And so just diminishing the overall quality of life for everyone in the family. Um, so I really like that community based approach. Is there anything for the month of April that is National Child Abuse Prevention Month? Uh, is there anything going on with your organization or resources that you want me to direct people to?
2: Yes. And so I know you said in the show notes we'll have our website, pcaiowa.org. Um, we will be having an interactive map where people can look and see different events that are going on throughout the month in their community, whether it's a proclamation signing or a family fun night or um, where they can find a pinwheel garden, um, lots That's of- pinwheel garden. So the pinwheel is um, part of the logo of the Prevent Child Abuse uh, okay. Chapter Network, and it really symbolizes a happy childhood, kind of that that whimsical happy childhood. And so, as part of awareness building, if you see a you know blue pinwheel garden, that is uh, all about raising awareness for Child Abuse Prevention Month. Very cool. Very
0: cool. Take
1: a kid to a pinwheel garden and just watch their face, and they will love it. Right. And that's exactly what we're striving for is that, that look on those kids faces, right? Like, yeah, this is great. I love this. Yeah. Encourage them to take a pinwheel. Give the kids the pinwheels.
0: Thanks. Nice. I will have to look, look for those.
2: And then our website also has uh, contact information. So wherever you're at in the state of Iowa, you can get in touch with local child abuse prevention um, mm-hmm. coalitions to to find out what they're doing and how you can get involved locally or um, our website has information about our activities as well.
0: Great. Well, this was so helpful. Lots of great information and resources, and I will be linking a lot of it back in the show notes for our listeners so they can head over to your website and learn more. I'm also going to link information about ACEs because I feel like while people in our work fields know a lot about ACEs, it's still kind of... um, uh, new and interesting information for a lot of people. And I think um, ACEs, as well as what Greg mentioned, um, there are so many other positive childhood experiences um, that, and I don't remember the term you used, benevolent. Is that what you said, Greg? Mm-hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Childhood experiences that we can also focus on. Um, So this was great. I really appreciate your time and information today. Uh, And for those listening who have EFR's EAP benefits, don't forget that you and anyone in your immediate household have access to our employee assistance program. You can call 800-327-4692 to coordinate counseling sessions or find the support and resources you need. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, Abby. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Emotion Well. Please subscribe to us and don't forget to rate us. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Emotion Well is hosted by Johanna Dunlevy and produced by Emily Wancom.